What's going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Adventures in DevOps. I will be your host today. I'm Will Button. Joining me in the studio is my co-host, Jonathan Hall. Hey, everyone. How's it going? And our special guest today, Lane Wagner. Welcome, Lane. Hey, thanks for having me. Hey, excited to have you here. So tell us a little bit about your background and who you are, why you're famous, and that kind of stuff. <laughs> Maybe someday I'll be famous. Um, probably not. Uh, yeah, so I've been writing code for over 10 years. Um, most of my career has been spent in uh, pretty focused on back-end development. Um, I've, I've done a little bit of DevOps, especially towards the end of my career as I was moving into like more leadership roles. Um, I don't know why that went hand-in-hand with managing infrastructure, but it did. Um, <laughs> anyways, kind of towards the tail end of my employment as a full-time employee, I, I went full-time on boot dev. So I've since quit uh, my full-time job and I'm now the founder of boot.dev, which is a online learning platform for learning backend development, um, and a little bit of DevOps, because as I'm sure we'll get into in the show, I think that those two roles, uh, are, uh, maybe even more similar than the famous full stack engineer. So, yeah, for sure. Like there's, I think you could have a pretty strong argument that those two roles overlap in a couple of areas. Yeah. Yeah. I'm excited to get into it. But the first three um, letters, for example, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yeah. So that takes us into today's topic. Um, Are you even a DevOps engineer if you aren't writing code? And uh, I love that. I love that topic. So this is based off of a blog article that you wrote over on boot.dev, right? Yeah, exactly. So um, just to like lay some groundwork, are, are you guys are, are you both familiar with like the Phoenix project and the DevOps oh, handbook? Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Awesome. So like my perception of this whole thing and like I have to couch all of this in the premise that I've never uh, worked officially as just a DevOps engineer. I shouldn't say just, as explicitly a DevOps <laughs> engineer. <laughs> just a menial but, grunt worker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but my perception is that, like, you know, the DevOps movement was kind of born out of, like, a couple different things. Um, and most of the people that I've worked in uh, or with in a DevOps specific role have come from an IT ops background, right? So, you know, rewind the clock 15 years, read the Phoenix project, like get what that means, but basically managing infrastructure, usually on premise um, and kind of manually installing things on boxes. Right. Um, And now we live in this like different world uh, in the cloud where I would argue almost always you want to be managing your infrastructure with code. And maybe code isn't the right way to describe YAML files, but at least it lives in source control. So. Don't burst my bubble. <laughs> no, I, I agree with you 100%. Like, I'm a huge advocate of, at this point, our infrastructure should be defined as code. And one of my personal pet peeves is a lot of the uh, 
there's a lot of tooling out there that um, parades itself around as DevOps tooling, but it's just a point and click GUI for deploying infrastructure, which, you know, is fine. Like that has its place. Um, But one of the areas where I think it falls short is you go into the point and click GUI, you set something up, and then a month from now, you or one of your coworkers goes in and changes something that alters the behavior of that. It's really, really hard in the tools that I've played with to find out who changed what and how that affected your configuration. And I think that's where the, I think that's the strong selling point for infrastructure as code is you have that Git history and a pull request and some accountability there. Yeah, a lot of platforms have like audit logs built in, but the nice thing about Git is that it's this kind of standardized way of auditing things. Right? Yeah, for sure. Um, you know exactly where to go to see where the change is and and some of the other tools like they they have the audit logs, but it's like where where is that? What menu option is that under or how many other logs am I going to have to scroll through to find the the logs that are actually relevant? Yeah. Yeah. So like, to me, the interesting question, like in this kind of discussion about like, how much code do you need to like, (laughs) how comfortable should you be writing code as a DevOps professional? Right. And like, do you just need to be good at YAML configs? Do you just need to be good at Terraform? Do you need to be really good with Bash? Right. Do you need to learn Python so you can script some things? Um, That to me is like a really interesting question. And I definitely have some opinions. But to be honest, like, I'm, I'm definitely not sure because the landscape's changing so quickly. Like this year, I'm using Netlify to deploy my front end. Like two years ago, I was deploying from an S3 bucket, which was, you know, much more troublesome, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) So I'd be interested in laying out some definitions for the rest of this conversation, uh, which is kind of how you start your article. Although before before we go there, I have to say I'm disappointed. Uh, the second sentence of your article really is a big letdown. When it says you're not the arbiter of truth, I was really hoping you could finally <laughs> settle this debate. <laughs> Don't worry, I'll update the article after, okay. uh, after the podcast. Uh, but you you, ta- you say, for example, uh, the pioneers of the DevOps movement had a specific meaning in mind that's mostly misunderstood. Um, what? How do you see? I, I think we all agree. I mean, I, we we all agree on that. Uh, I'll, I'll bet that if we get ten DevOps people in the room, we're all going to disagree on what DevOps <laughs> is, but we'll agree that it's misunderstood. <laughs> yeah. So, just so we can all be on the same page for the, this conversation, how do you define or describe DevOps? Yeah, great question. Um, let me scroll down so I make sure I don't like misquote myself in uh, as I pull up this article. <laughs> <laughs> it was supposed okay. to be a test. Now it's not a valid <laughs> test. <laughs> yeah. I uh, Unfortunately, I write a lot of articles. Uh, <laughs> not all of them are good. <clears throat> um, cool. So what I pulled out was basically a snippet from the DevOps handbook. Uh, farther down in the article, I say, the most important, uh, important point made in the DevOps handbook is that IT operations become more like development, where the product is the platform that developers use to run their services. Right. So um, I was I was interviewing at a, at a large company um, a while back that I ended up turning down um, <laughs> because I wanted to work on boot.dev. Um, but what, 
I was really fascinated internally. I won't say what company this is, but the way they were running their DevOps team, because it was like a breath of fresh air, at least to me. Um, their DevOps team were developers, um, software engineers who knew how to write code. And their whole job was just building tooling that the rest of the company would use to deploy and manage and install telemetry and that sort of thing. Um, rather than the other kind of the reverse of that, which I've seen a lot, which is where kind of the DevOps engineers don't don't do any building of tooling. And instead, they just use the tooling for the developers. And I think that's a huge disservice because the tooling actually isn't that hard to learn how to use. And if you're the one writing the code and you're the one using the tooling that deploys it and monitors it, I feel like you're just at an inherent advantage because you're monitoring your own code. You know what it should do. You know the expected behaviors. The only alternative, in, in my mind, is like you have to have constant meetings with your DevOps people to explain to them what the code should be doing and explain to them what the expected... You have this kind of communication overlap. Um, so, so I'll just read that again so that we can like be clear on at least my, my definition of DevOps. And it's that um, IT operations become more like development where the product is the platform that developers use to run their services. I guess we'll get in the show now, right? <laughs> well, it really sucks if we all agree. That's no fun. We need to find something to argue with. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, mean, it, it, I, I, could, I can argue with that. I mean, not... not I, can, I can argue with some subtleties in that. Um, just for the sake of argument. I normally wouldn't argue with the guest, but you, you asked for it, so... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the gloves are off. <laughs> Here we go. Um, so I, I, I like... I like and I'm, I'm not actually going to argue against that point specifically, but more of a meta point. Um, I like the question in your title. Are you a DevOps engineer if you aren't writing code? Uh, because to me, it poses two false premises. And, and one is that a DevOps engineer is a thing. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. And the other is that, that uh, kind of that you know, writing code is, is, is even like in the same universe as DevOps. Uh, I mean, and I, that, that, I'll have to defend that statement here in a second. But but first, I, I see DevOps as more of um, an alignment of, of priorities and of goals between Dev and Ops. It's the merging of Dev and Ops. Uh, and it's really hard to do that in a role or on a team. You know, you, you, uh, so you know, sort of the same idea that a DevOps team, if you have a DevOps team, you're probably not doing DevOps because... You've put your DevOps in a silo, and the whole point of DevOps is to take DevOps out of a is to get rid of the silos between DevOps. You know, and and I know that not everybody who has a quote unquote DevOps team is doing that, but there's a strong, it's it's a it's more of a, a team name smell than a, a an actual problem, if you know what I mean, right? Yeah. Um, so that's kind of what I'm getting at with the DevOps engineer isn't a thing. Yes, there are people who have that title and get paid to do something called DevOps engineer. Um, is it truly DevOps? Sometimes, definitely. More often than not, it's just they changed they changed an operations engineer or sysadmin or something, changed the title, and they're still doing the same old not DevOps stuff with a new name. So that's really the complaint there. And then as far as the writing code, like um, I think that a UX designer can be doing quote DevOps in in the organizational cultural sense. You know, they're part of a company that does DevOps, whether they write code or do ops or not. So that, that those are the two false premises I, I I'm pulling out there. I'm really not trying to argue with you. I'm just making 
I'm, I'm jumping off of that, uh, that box you gave me to stand on about the argument. So that, that's really all that is. <laughs> I think it's so much better if you do argue with me. Though. Okay. <laughs> so much more interesting. Uh, <laughs> so um, now I'm going to cheat and say that I have two definitions. Oh. Um, there's like DevOps, the philosophy, and like the way we do things. And then I feel like we're kind of just stuck with the reality that there are going to be people called DevOps engineers for like a while. <laughs> Maybe we'll get away from that, right? Um, and like, for the point on philosophy, I, I, I'm just, I just agree with you. Like, DevOps is this thing. It's this way we do things. It's this methodology, right? You could say it's kind of like in the same bucket of things as like agile development. It's like this type of Definitely. development. Yeah, yeah. Um, it has all the same confusions it, around it. Not. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, Scrum sucks, right? I don't know. Maybe there's like a subset of uh, DevOps that we can find that, that sucks. Um, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> the job title portion, my take is that if you're going to have the title DevOps engineer, right, which... All right, like right out of the gate, if you're a DevOps engineer and your organization is not doing the like philosophy of DevOps, then like it's already an oxymoron. Mm -hmm. You just have a manager who like needs a pat on the back from his executive that they're doing the modern thing, right? right? Which right. is to have DevOps engineers and not to have IT ops people. Yeah. Um, but if you are going to have that team, and I think there are there is a place for that team in large orgs. It, like to be honest, if you have less than like 50 engineers and you have a DevOps team, you might be doing it wrong, in my opinion. Like, you might just need to train up your people on how to like deploy their code. Um, but I do think as you get larger, it can make sense to have teams that are dedicated to increasing the efficiency of the other teams, right? Building them tooling, standardizing the deployment scripts, uh, that Agreed. sort of thing. I just wouldn't call it a DevOps team. Fair enough. What would you call it? Platform team. Um, operations team. I mean, so I mean, if, if you take, if you look at all the all the definition, all the job descriptions for DevOps engineer, and take off the title and and look at those things, what would you call it? An operations engineer. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So you know, we, we've just relabeled the operations team. Now, that's not to say that we haven't made good changes. Sometimes, you know, as you alluded to at the beginning, the sort of traditional operations team wasn't making self-service services. They were sort of just running the tools for developers. And so that's wrong. Or, or I shouldn't say wrong, like in the moral sense, but it's, it's less effective. It's uh, unethical. <laughs> it, it might be in some cases. <laughs> so, um, you know, m maybe th these, quote, DevOps teams are building self-service tools, whatever. But I would call that a platform team. I mean, we, we have a, a perfectly good name for that. And we had a guest on a couple weeks ago to talk about that. So that, that, that's, you know, I, I don't want to spend too much time about what we call things. You know, a rose by any other name is still a rose. But, but uh, yeah. yeah. No, I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm perfectly fine to just be like, yeah, that's fine. Um, I, I don't have like a hard stance about not calling it a DevOps team, but I'm also completely fine with cloud engineer platform team. Honestly, in my opinion, the more descriptive you can be, the better. One of my biggest but, pet peeves working on uh, back-end services is how... I don't know if you, you guys have almost certainly experienced this. Everyone names their services like crazy bullshit names. Like what? Uh, no. <laughs> Simpsons characters, uh, Star Wars references. Is that what you're going for? Yeah. yeah. Galaxor, like just right. wild. 
And so when you onboard someone new, like the first few months are just figuring out what all of these random names mean that are totally specific to this company. Um, I'm all about descriptive names. Yeah. I like services that are named after what they do. And Absolutely. I think that's, the, that's the, the pragmatic problem with the word DevOps. It's not that it doesn't match some original philosophy handed down by the, by the DevOps gods. It's that if I, walk, if I go into a meetup and somebody says, I'm a DevOps engineer, I have no idea what they do. <laughs> I don't know if they configure Jenkins all day or if they're actually writing code. You know, maybe they're writing Kubernetes uh, CRDs or you know, maybe they're doing something really, really advanced or maybe they're just a, a, a Jenkins script kitty. I have no idea. <laughs> so that's the real problem with the title. Yeah. That, yeah. I couldn't agree more. Um, I don't think worrying about definitions matters other than to avoid confusion. Right. <laughs> cool. So now that we've settled that, we all know, we all agree 100% on what DevOps means. <laughs> Where does coding go, come into that picture? And, and do you have to, uh, sh- should you be writing code if you're a DevOps engineer? Yeah. So this is like, this is the big question. Um, there's been obviously like a ton in the news this year in terms of like AI is coming for your job, right? And I think for a while, like I think ops people have been experiencing this for a while, but not without AI, where it's like platforms are coming for your job, right? Where like now I click a button to deploy something instead of having to hand it off to an ops team. Um, and so I'm actually super interested to hear your guys' uh, take on where all of this is going. Um, I've heard some really dumb takes, like all we need are front end engineers now, right? Where we uh, we take HTML, CSS, we hook it up to a back end powered by GPT four, and like we're off to the races. Um, I think there are a couple global of... master database, and we just all have an API key to access it, and it's on the blockchain, <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it has infinite scalable compute, um, and we just have to pay OpenAI twenty bucks a month. so yeah like i don't i don't know where this is going but my gut tells me that like we keep moving in the direction of um like abstracting the hard parts right so like Mm -hmm. for example this year i'm using um what's it called is it copilot no it's not copilot that's the github thing um crap i'm using kubernetes on google cloud platform and they have like a one-click install button. I can't remember what it's called now because I clicked the button once and forgot about it. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Hashtag DevOps. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, But like it's, it's moving in this direction of abstraction. So like Kubernetes is the ultimate abstraction machine. Right, like where we move all the hardware behind some interface. Um, It's APIs all the way down. So in my mind, the only way like to stay on top of your game as an ops or DevOps person is to keep on top of these tools. And most of them require that if you're doing a useful thing with them, that you're configuring them through code some way. Mm-hmm. Because clicking the buttons is just getting too damn easy. Say, say that again. I'm trying to understand exactly. Clicking yeah, the buttons so is like, too easy. Yeah, like here's a trivial example that's been around for a while. Like setting up DNS. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't need to really know anything anymore to set up DNS. Um, like, you don't need to know what's going on behind the scenes. Um, right. There's, like, a UI in, let's just assume, Netlify that gives you, like, three little instructions. Go here, copy this, paste it here, put it there. Like, now we're good to go. Um, 
You don't really need the networking background for that mm-hmm. portion of it. Um, but you do need the networking background if you're doing like complex stuff within Kubernetes, although now you're probably using code to do it. Like the question I get asked by students all the time, which is like a very fair question, and I think sometimes can be can like feel annoying to those of us who've been in the industry for a while, but like it's a it's a realistic question. It's like, what are the things that I need to be best at? Mm. Like I'm trying to get Google. my first job. What are the most important skills? Need to learn yeah. how to use Google or Chat GPT these days. <laughs> As long as you can see through the hallucinations. Right, exactly, exactly. So I think going back to sort of the broader question, how is AI going to affect our jobs? Um, my, my stance on this is my entire job is to automate my job away. That's the only thing I ever do all day. And that's the only thing any uh, self-respecting software developer or engineer is doing. So we should be glad when it's easy to do that. <laughs> and, and when you consider how much crap code there is out there and how many security vulnerabilities there are written by, by unexperienced or uncaring, even in some cases, engineers, uh, w- we don't have an abundance of in software engineering skills relative to the demand. And I, I'm not talking Agreed. about butts and seats. I'm not talking about the job market per se. I'm talking about the skills market. Right. You know, people cannot get the skills they need for the money they can afford right now. That's just not possible, except in rare cases. You know, some of the big companies might be able to. But in general, companies want more IT skills and programming skills than are than exist in the world. So if we can make these people more effective with AI or any other tool, I don't care what it is. Why not? I'm not afraid of my job, and I'm and looking at the industry. I'm not afraid that even the unskilled engineers out there are going to lose their jobs. They'll just be more effective with less skills, and that's great. At least for a very long time. Yeah, no. I, so I completely agree. There's there's two things I want to respond to there, and we'll see if by the time I get through the first one, I can remember the second one because I have short term memory loss on on podcasts. Uh, but but the first one is so what you just described is like one of the primary reasons I ended up developing boot.dev. Um, I see two problems in the job market, especially on the developer side. We have way too many like quote unquote entry-level developers, but like people like people that have not yet found their first job that have been sold like a bill of goods on like you can learn to code in three months and you're gonna get your first job. So like very low skill cap. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a huge supply of those people. And anytime someone opens up like a new entry-level JavaScript or Python or whatever job, it's flooded with like a thousand remote candidates, mm-hmm. right? Um, and on the flip side, like you said, we, ha- we have a shortage in like the senior and mid-level market. Um, but also, I would argue that we have a shortage in the entry-level market of people who are just simply prepared for an entry-level job. Mm-hmm. So like my thing is, it's not going to take three months. It's going to take longer. And you need to go way deeper on this stuff than what you've been told by, you know, the latest, I don't know, marketing ad from from some boot camp. Right. Um, so that's like thing number one. And I, I did. I forgot thing number two. So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> What had you said right before I'd gone into my tirade about the job market? Um, I had said, my job is to automate my own job away. Um, that's the one. Okay. That's the one. Okay. Automating your job away. So this is like super interesting to me um, because generally speaking, especially in an ideal world, I completely agree. 
And I've always been like, I've been lucky to consider myself in a position where I can automate my job away without like worrying about my job. And I feel like there's like, broadly speaking, there's like a couple different situations you can be in where this works. So like, if you're kind of in charge of your own team, so like if you're a team lead um, or in like a fairly senior position, I feel like you can probably automate your job away without many consequences. You probably will even get like a pat on the back for it. Um, I think, and like if you have a manager who doesn't really know what you're doing all day anyways, like a non-technical manager, then again, like I think you can kind of automate your responsibilities away and like sit back and enjoy. But there's this other situation that I can imagine that I've never been like in personally where I could see danger in it. So like if you automate your job away where you take yourself from having to like manually do stuff, you know, 40 hours a week down to let's say four hours a week and your manager knows it because they're technical (laughs) and they now see that you don't have anything to do. Mm -hmm. I feel like that, that could be a concern. Have either of you experienced this? Yes. Very recently. Uh, and, and not not per se about automation, but um, I, I was recently let go from a job in part, uh, I believe, this wasn't actually stated to me, but I believe part of it was that I had taken a holiday and during my absence, nothing burned down. <laughs> so it yeah, it felt like, uh, why are we paying this guy if, if when he's gone, nobody misses him? Um, so, you know, and, and you know, I, I can understand the, the thought process. <laughs> But it's it's wrong <laughs> for 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 reasons we can talk about. It's short sighted, sure. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so yes, that that will always happen. Uh, I mean, I, I don't think uh, short of literally educating every human being who's ever in a management position about uh, you know long term effects and so on. And even then, some are going to make the choice to to go for the short term financial gain over the long term sustainability of the team or whatever. So it's always going to be an issue. Um, you know, and we we have the same issue on Wall Street too, right? You know. Uh, co- corporates doing layoffs to to help the bottom line in the short term, knowing full well that all the evidence says that it's going to hurt the bottom line in the long run. You know, we'll worry about that when we get to it. You know, that sort of mentality. So, you know, that happens all the time. It will always happen. Uh, so, yeah, and, you know, in that sense, um, automating your own job away can be detrimental. And there are people who aren't willing to to make that. Uh, you know, who want to work for those companies for whatever reason because it's comfortable or they they like their colleagues or whatever, and so they're going to just you know, not automate the jobs away. It is a good gold star. And I would argue, like, you could play your cards right, where, like, (laughs) you automate the ops, uh, the, let's just say, like, the deployment infrastructure, the telemetry, whatever. You automate all that stuff. And now you're feeling like you don't have a lot to do. If you feel that your job's in danger, I would argue the best thing to do is just to start job searching and in every interview point out how efficient you made your last... (laughs) <laughs> your last place of employment. Right. right. For sure. That's um, one of the things I've always advocated is like, if you do work yourself out of a job, that's the most fantastic reference you can have when going to look for another job. I've said the same to recruiters before. Like, oh, I see you've only worked at these last, you know, three jobs a year or two years. What, what's, what's up with that? Why don't you stay longer? I said, well, when I started a new job, my goal is to work myself out of a job. And uh, that's usually how long it takes, a year to two years, and I'm done. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, so you know how like software is kind of a capital intensive market Mm -hmm. in terms of like, it takes all of this upfront capital to develop a product, develop a, a software service, and then you kind of deploy it. And yeah, there's like ongoing maintenance and you like push features and stuff. 
Um, but you kind of like start to reap the rewards of the fact that software doesn't have an ongoing cost of service, right? Um, so you got this like upfront capital and then you, you reap the rewards. Um, I think the assumption, like if you ever talk to any like first time software founder, uh, they all have this assumption that like you build the product and then you launch it and then you just make money after that, mm-hmm. right? And I think that's kind of the the assumption about these capital-based markets. But in reality, I think we all know, like you launch the product and then there's like fires every day and product needs a new thing. And so you actually keep growing the software team and there's more work over time instead of less. Mm-hmm. What's interesting to me is like, is that the same thing that happens with IT ops? Or is it actually a different beast? It does... Does the does the automation that we put in place as as DevOps and ops engineers um, have more staying power than the features that are deployed by developers? I think there's a couple things at play here. Um, first, let, let's say you do exactly as you said. You build your software product and you launch. Let's say you you onboard a hundred thousand customers and then zero more. You're like you you never nobody turns <laughs> and you never add new customers, right? At that point, your additional ongoing effort to to add features and do bug fixes becomes very minimal. You know, it's going to drop off very quickly. The reason that we have this ongoing maintenance is because we're onboarding new people. We're we're growing in in short, hopefully. You know, I mean, sometimes it's churn, but if you're churning, your goal is to stop the churn first and then grow. So, you know, the reason that these things are changing is because new people are using our product and they have new requirements or new assumptions or whatever. You know, we're expanding to new markets. I think with with that in mind, uh, in IT operations, we're going to have something similar. You know, if your customer base stays static, you're going to reach a plateau and you're going to be done. You know, and and that's it. Uh, if and, and and it's it's a it's at a different level of abstraction, so you, you might actually hit that sooner or later in operations versus software development, depending on what's going on. In other words, uh, or or to make that more concrete, um, if you're let's say you're building a WordPress site, just make something simple, right? And it, it, you're adding new features or, or changing features 20 times a week, but it's all WordPress. Uh, your IT ops team is going to hit a plateau in a couple weeks and they're done. Like our, our WordPress deployments are automated 100%. You know, we have no downtime upgrades, blah, 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 whatever. Databases are backed up. We can, we can fix the database at the push of a button, you know, because that IT landscape isn't changing. Even if the customer base is changing all the time, um, the only thing that IT ops has to worry about then is maybe scaling. You know, at, when they go from 100,000 to a million users, they need to add more nodes or whatever. But that's the only thing they have to change. Uh, if your customers are changing, though, in the sense that, you know, we started as B2C, now we're B2B, and we have a completely different uh, type of customer concerns. We need do- new databases. We need event-driven architecture. So that sort of stuff. That's when your IT operations is going to change too, because the requirements that the 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 infrastructure requirements are changing along with the user requirements. That makes a lot of sense to me, and um, I'm also imagining just this absolute minefield for middle management, like trying to explain that idea of like we onboarded ten thousand people last week, and we didn't need a single more ops person. Yeah. It's like, well, we didn't change the feature set and all the loads on the client, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, it's it's so dependent, um, which, like, 
another opinion I have. I, I'm very against um, non-technical managers um, because I think it just solves a lot of these problems right out the gate. <laughs> yeah, I think that that's a whole um, a whole nother can of worms right there. Is the number of layers of management in the company because at some point you know you have um, you have work that's being done for the sake of, of um, creating work. If you, so I'm going to do a plug early or a pick or, or whatever. Uh, <laughs> if you haven't read the article, The Gervais Principle, oh, named after a, Ricky Gervais, yeah. go definitely read that. I've read it so, three or four times. Yeah. Oh man, that's some good stuff. That that book changed my outlook in ways that no, nothing else ever has. <laughs> I don't agree with everything in it, but it was very eye-opening. Yeah, yeah. So, or just go watch The Office. That's easier. Yeah, it, it doesn't really give you. You, you <laughs> might just laugh through that and not not get the subtle subtext that that article pulls out. Um, yeah, so that's true. I I've been reading a book um, that I've mentioned on the show a couple times, uh, at least uh, about wordly mapping. And for those who aren't familiar, I'll, I'll just try to paint a brief picture. It's a really long book, but I'll try to paint a picture in about 30 seconds. Um, it, it's an XY, it's a graph with an XY and Y axis. Along the X axis, you have the, a product maturity, broadly speaking. So on the, on the far left side, uh, at zero, you have a product that's in its genesis or it's, it's you know, a, a concept. Uh, quantum computing is probably in that area right now, right? You know, it's still very highly experimental. We don't know what's, what it really can do. We have some ideas, but, you know, it's, it's very early stages. At the far right end of the spectrum, you have something that's utility. So like your electric meter, uh, you know, you know, electricity, um, fuel for your automobile. These are essentially utilities. You know, there's no competing, there's no competitive advantage from one supplier to another. You just pay the price, whatever. It's like commodity price. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then there's a whole spectrum in the middle. And then from what I'm, I'm less interested in this for this particular point I'm making, but from from top to bottom, the y-axis is uh, as you go up the y-axis, you get closer to the the user of your product. Uh, so, but I'm mostly interested in that in that x-axis right now, from experimental to commodity. And software development, by its very nature, is always on the left side of that, near the experimental, uh, emerging sort of technology stuff. And that's for the very simple reason that if we already had software that did what we wanted, we wouldn't be writing software. We'd be typing, typing the copy command. So every time we make software, it, 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 the only exception really is if you're reverse engineering something uh, because you lost the source code or because you're hacking a competitor's product or something like that. Those are the only times we're actually rewriting software that already exists, right? Otherwise, we are literally creating something new every single time. And this is why software prediction is so difficult and why, why we have all these debates on social media about story points and velocity versus should we versus no estimates all that nonsense it operations Even if the, go ahead no go ahead go ahead go ahead yeah it operations uh doesn't have that same sort of certainty about it uh the certainty that is uncertain <laughs> it operations can happen anywhere from emerging to commodity if you're running aws lambda you're far on the on the commodity side of things right almost it's not completely commoditized because you're still stuck to AWS. For it to become completely mm -hmm. commoditized, it has to be possible for you to take your, your Lambda function and run it on Google or Azure without changing your code. So we're not there yet. We may never be there. But we're closer to that end than we are to the emerging things, right? Now, 15 years ago, before Kubernetes, uh, if you wanted to auto-scale, you were very much in that experimental emerging phase. Not anymore. 
So it depends on what you're doing with operations. You may be somewhere from that far left side of the spectrum, uh, emerging technology, experimental stuff. We don't know if it's going to work, but we're going to try it to at least a product. You know, AWS Lambda is a product for sure, which is like the, the next stage before you get to commoditization. Uh, so if you choose to use build your IT ops on something that is more product or, or utility-like, you can get to that point where you don't need as many ops people much more quickly. Whereas if you choose to build it yourself, if you say, I don't want Kubernetes, I'm going to build my own autoscaler and my own load balancer and my own uh, whatever, virtual networking stuff. You know, if you want to do it all yourself, you can, but you're going to spend years on the, on the left side of that graph uh, building experimental stuff, trying to find things, you know, learn new things. This is why if, if you do something out of the box like Heroku, which is just sort of you know, super simple, uh, you know, if you, as long as you follow their rules, it's easy. Then you can get out of that much faster. So the the interesting thing about to me about this discussion is I like I feel like you can pretty easily picture how like the, the most efficient thing for society and like the thing that you'd probably want uh, society to encourage is to get to the point where we can commoditize it, right? Mm-hmm. So it's super easy because then we don't have to worry about it anymore. It displaces right. jobs, right? Like we're right. familiar with this whole mm-hmm. this whole uh, thing with like truck driving and whatever. It displaces jobs, but like pretty objectively, it frees up human labor to do other things. Yeah, well, right? who still wants to be there manually grinding ball bearings for their automobiles, right? We'd rather a right. machine do that for us. But one interesting thing that will that that like I would argue the only thing that could really thwart that from eventually happening, where we we do commoditize it, we do automate it all is big players in the space intentionally thwarting the process um, for like I- I- in their own self-interest, right? So for example, um, you might as GCP want to keep your deployment process proprietary and specific to GCP so that people can't move, right? If we do agree on a standard, oh, uh, now I can very simply move to the cheapest provider, for example. And then when their costs go up, I move to the other provider. A nightmare for providers, right? right. Um, which is like, I mean, like you'd have to get into like free market theory to like really dig into this, but I don't know where we go. <laughs> but uh, I feel like that's the only thing that could really stop eventual commodification of of like deployments and things like that. Sure. And, you know, what part of the larger point of the, the book about worldly Bops is, is it that exact point, actually, um, that there, there are different forces at play in the market. And one of those is the desire to, uh, you know, build a differentiator that is hard to replicate. You know, we, we talk about that in business and in other terms, too. Uh, but you're absolutely right. You know, but um, and not everything ever makes it to the commodity stage. Uh, and maybe Lambda never will. Who knows? Uh, certainly Docker has made VMs reach that point or, or very, near, very nearly that point. You know, you, you can easily run your Docker image on AWS or on Google or Azure or on your, de- on your laptop or whatever. So you know, at least at that level, that commodity has, has essentially been, been reached. I guess a good example actually is this week I was buying paint mm-hmm. to touch up my cabinets. And all I had for my builder was the information that the paint that I had was called magnetite. So I walked into the Sherwin-Williams around the corner and I said, I need magnetite. And they said, what? <laughs> I'm like, magnetite, you know, the paint color. He's like, yeah, but is it Sherwin-Williams? Is it this other brand or this other brand or this other brand? I'm like, I, I, I don't know. They just told me magnetite. 
<clears throat> I tweeted about it because I was mad. And our own AJ O'Neill responded and said, it's a tactic by the brands, right? Like yeah. they're able to lock you into their descriptions of paint colors. And now when you want to go buy a replacement paint, you can't get the color from somebody else. You have to buy from the same brand. By the way, I'm pretty sure you can take a paint sample in those places. They'll scan it with the computer and tell you, you know, they'll, they'll get the exact... Uh, I had to take my cabinet off and take it in. I don't know how accurate <laughs> that is, but they, I know they do that. <laughs> it, it, it worked well, but I okay. did have to take a cabinet door off. <laughs> yeah. There's there's your next big uh, entrepreneurship idea for anyone listening. It's like, let's get that image recognition working better. Yeah. I don't, I don't want to have to take a cabinet door off to get the information about yeah. my paint. At least it wasn't my... your front door. Right. Yeah. That's true. <laughs> it was something portable. <laughs> Out <laughs> there peeling siding off of your house. Just take yes. a picture with your mobile phone. That that's good enough, right? Right. That that's what I asked him. He was like, "No, it won't work." <laughs> I was like, "It has so many megapixels." Okay, that's all that matters. <laughs> <laughs> but the guy at the iPhone store said. <laughs> <laughs> So, how much code do you need to learn to write as yeah, a DevOps professional? That's like the that's like the big question here. Should wanna, you be learning application side of the stack? Yeah, yeah. Actually, I want to I want to talk <clears throat> about that part because that's one of the places where learning how to write code has actually helped me more. I think in my career is in working with software development teams because I always treat my job as like. The software development teams are my customers, and my job is to help my customers build their products as easy as possible. And so the ability to read and write code, I think, has been helpful in that regard from helping them architect applications, you know, because they're all doing logging, they're all doing monitoring, they're all connecting to databases, and being able to look at and contribute to their code has given me the ability to help them build better, more resilient applications. You know, so whether it's implementing um, a, uh, some middleware for logging so that all the applications are handling logging the same way or a database connection um, or one that comes up over and over again is the health check for your Docker container. No, it's not okay to just return HTTP 200 without actually checking to see if the container is healthy. And so that's one of the places where knowing how to write code helps because you can look at that endpoint in their application and say, dudes, y'all are not checking anything. Like this container is going to claim to be healthy regardless of what's on fire around it. And so I think that's one of the um, subtle areas where as a DevOps engineer, writing code really helps helps you be better at your profession. That's actually, <clears throat> I think the best way I've ever heard it put. I love that analogy. So I worked at a marketing analytics company and the product people, right, the people who are in charge of like what features were shipping had to be really good marketers. Like they had to understand what these people are using our tool for. And so it makes sense that if you're kind of looking at yourself as a, as a DevOps person as like, how am I enabling these engineers to ship better code? You kind of need to understand like what, what code is and what it does and how it works. Yeah, I think a similar I, analogy is um, as uh, building, building airplanes. Like 
Which we all do all the time. Yeah, exactly. That's what. That's why I bring it up because it's just a <laughs> taking it down analogy. a level. Just <laughs> <laughs> right. So, like, if you're going to build an airplane, you kind of need to know a little bit about about you know how airplanes work and and what they do. What do airplanes do? Actually, they're really nothing. They actually just sit right where they are, and while you're inside. Mm. The CIA reframes the background, so when you walk off the plane, you think you're in a different location, but I that's a different it. podcast. I knew it. Yeah. <laughs> they were actually a social experiment to see how slowly we could load 60 people into a fuselage. <laughs> <clears throat> so I, I think I have the op- I did, did the opposite way from Will. I started as a developer and worked my way, you know, to the back end, you know, even past the back end to the servers and the installation installations and you know server racks and so on uh, and eventually virtualization and kubernetes and so you know these days i i definitely have my feet in both uh both uh camps you know dev and ops so to speak and i definitely think that it helps a, a ton you know it, it helps my dev experience helps me with operations and my ops experience helps me with dev you know, I, I have a much better sense when I'm writing code to handle exceptions or to do logging or to to, to do metrics or, or alerting, whatever, uh, to, you know, just even just handling a shutdown process. Uh, you know, I, I have my ops experience that it helps inform that. And I know, oh, yeah, I need to consider there might be two copies of this process running at the same time, even though we never intend that because the one comes up before the other one comes down. And there could be race conditions if they're both talking to the database at the same time or, or whatever, you know, these sorts of things that that you know, back in the old days, we never worried about because you you stopped the process and started it again. <laughs> and and you know, on the ops side, you know, okay, I need to, I need to, I need to consume these logs and do something with them in such a way that a developer can meaningfully read them. You know, just having the logs on a disk isn't good enough. They need to be accessible, and they need to be you need to be able to correlate them to something. You know, so you know, both both it goes both directions. So I I think I might be willing to say that if you want to be a good Ops engineer, you should know dev. And if you want to be a good dev, you should know ops. Not not to say that everybody needs both, but it really helps a lot. You know, nobody's ever going to wish they hadn't learned it if they ha- if they do. Yeah, and I think that's one of the most like th- I always get frustrated when I talk to students or new learners or even people who are professionally employed. Say, what do I need to know? Because to me, that's a pretty good heuristic for someone who's not like going to be the most successful engineer right. in my contact list, right? It's the people who want to know and aren't afraid to go figure it out that are going to really succeed mm-hmm. in this industry. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, you have to be comfortable with being in unknown territory. I had somebody ask me once, uh, they said, hey, Jonathan, I'm, I'm studying uh, to learn SendMail for certification. Uh, I know you know Linux really well and admin stuff. Uh, can uh, what advice can you give me to learn SendMail? My advice was don't learn SendMail. Install PostFix. It's so much easier to learn. And they literally, <laughs> like their face dropped. They were dejected and they walked away because I gave them bad advice because they were going for a particular certification. Uh, they they weren't they weren't in it for the knowledge or for the ability to manage a mail server. They were in it for the ability to get a certification that was specifically related to SendMail. And I, <laughs> sorry, I can't help you with that. As someone who professionally now sells certifications, I think certifications are bullshit. <laughs> um, and that you don't... It's the least interesting part of any 
like knowledge you can gain. Yeah. <laughs> so, why do you sell certifications then? I, I think I can guess the answer, but let's hear it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so there are certifications. Technically, you can go find them and download them. Uh, but it's it's just because people ask, yeah. like, oh, I I need a certificate a certificate at the end of this like learning platform to get, like, all right to get reimbursed or whatever from their employer probably. Or uh, they sometimes want I'm sure uh, other people because they want to, but then I go through this rigmarole like during the courses. It's it's a very long. I, I take the approach of like, it's eventually I want to have like the equivalent of a full CS degree of, of material that you could take mm-hmm. um, online, and you know, in there I'm talking about the fact that like these certificates like don't matter. You know, like less than half the developers I've worked with have had degrees. Mm-hmm. Um, it's about gaining these skills. It's about building the projects, putting them to practice, and proving that you have the skills. Um, so even though at the end you do get a certificate, I don't. I don't think uh, most people actually end up caring by the end. Mm-hmm. They just cared at the beginning when they signed up. Sure. Yeah. So the certificate is like the the lure in, but then the the ultimate goal is is learning the skills. Well, the interesting thing about like <laughs> marketing, <clears throat> I'm not a marketer, um, but I've been forced to sort of figure it out, is that it's really hard to change people's perceptions about something um, when they like are on your landing page. Mm-hmm. So like if I tried to give them the pitch of like this certificate doesn't matter and like change their mind right then, their chance of like trying the courses and checking it out is like goes down. Mm-hmm. Whereas if I just go, yep, check mark, you get, you get the certificate. Like if that's what you were worried about, it's here. Um, so it's, it's it's even less about allure, and it's more just like I'm going to check this box that you know some subset of my customers feel they have, even though I believe it's not. It shouldn't be a checkbox. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. There's a um, website where you can get degrees from like Harvard and Yale and Brown University. You just enter in your name and you click, and it generates <laughs> a, it generates the. Um, the PDF. The diploma, yeah, for you. <laughs> That's awesome. If you want to see an example, go to my LinkedIn profile. <laughs> <laughs> but meanwhile, let's move on to picks. Jonathan, I'm picking on you first. Do you have a pick for us? I do. Um, so my wife and I just finished watching a series that I've watched a few times. And since we mentioned the Gervais Principle, uh, I'm going to pick one of his. We just finished rewatching Extras, which is one of my favorite series by him. Um, if you haven't seen it, you definitely should watch it. If you like The Office, if you like The American Office, you might try The British Office. It's a little more crass, um, a little harder to to watch for certain people. And Extras is more like that. <laughs> the, the premise is that that he and the main character Maggie, uh, the two of them, they're they're just they're 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 friends and they're they're movie extras but they're they're trying to break and he in particular is trying to break into the acting scene and every episode has a different real life celebrity playing themselves but a parody version of themselves <laughs> so you have an episode with Kate Winslet playing uh you know giving uh telephone sex advice to to the the, the extras there's an episode with Ben Stiller directing a war movie and being a complete uh dick to everybody <laughs> and my favorite episode is one of Patrick Stewart, where he, uh, I mean, because I'm a, I'm a Trekkie, uh, but Patrick Stewart's on there and he is uh, trying to pitch his uh, movie where, where he plays the protagonist who's a James Bond style character 
who has the power of of uh, that that his character does in the X Men, where he like can control things with his mind, and he's tr- and he's just constantly at every turn making women's clothes fall off. <laughs> 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 so that's my pick for the week. Uh, it's a, it's short. It's two seasons uh, of six episodes each, so and they're like a half hour. So you can actually watch it in an afternoon. You could watch the whole thing if you really wanted to, or over the course of a couple of weeks. Extras with Ricky Gervais. That's my pick. Yeah, it sounds like the rest of my day has just been scheduled. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to be so productive today. No <laughs> <laughs> just move that to-do list onto tomorrow. <clears throat> All right, Lane, what about you? You got a pick for us? Yes. Um, so a guy I interact with on Twitter. <laughs> I probably am not privileged <laughs> enough to call him a friend, <laughs> but he's a YouTuber and he just published the most hilarious tech YouTube video I think I've ever seen. Um, it's called Exposing Astro Between Two Nerds. And it's a play on Between Two Ferns, if you're ever familiar with oh, that wow. uh, that little, uh, what is it, Zach Galifianakis uh, <laughs> short. Uh, but definitely... Go check out his YouTube video, Exposing Astro Between Two Nerds. Really good. Right on. It's like five minutes long. Yeah. All right, cool. So my pick is just really, really out there. Um, It's a book that I'm currently reading. I'm about halfway through it. It's called The Immortality Key, The Secret History of the Religion with No Name. The author is Brian Mirorescue. I'm not sure how that should pronounce his name, but The Immortality Key. So the this book is just talking about the origins and history of religion and tying it all the way back to the fact that they believe the, um, the Greeks, who are kind of like the founding fathers of Western civilization, that their religious practices was primarily based on um, hallucinogens. So like their whole spiritual belief came from doing um, magic mushrooms or LSD or whatever version of that they had. And then they, they're doing different um, archaeological studies in this book and talking about those, about how that served as the seeds for Christianity and these other religions. So the whole premise of the book is that they're saying the foundation of religions as we know them comes from um, an LSD trip, which has just been pretty cool because of the, you know, the actual evidence that they have tying this stuff together so it's a really cool read if you're into that kind of stuff i'm a huge fan of ancient history of lsd and, um well not that we'll admit to on the podcast but i am a okay. huge fan of um, <laughs> ancient history and ancient religions and and like the like the correlations between all of those different things and the, the areas where they overlap and the fact that they tied all of this together has been pretty pretty fascinating read Cool. That sounds awesome. Have you have you seen the YouTube channel Religion for Breakfast? No. It's a religious history YouTube channel. You might want to check it out. Really, really good stuff. Right on. Not, like, the important distinction is it's not theology for breakfast, right? It's religion <laughs> for breakfast. <laughs> right it's the academic study of religion. <laughs> I'll definitely check that out. I recently read, I think I picked this actually a few months ago, but since we're on the topic, I'll, I'll add another pick. Um, Michael Pollan's book. Actually, there's two of them on a similar topic. Uh, this is Your Mind on Plants and How to Change Your Mind uh, are about the sort of the history of certain psychedelics and other 
chemicals that are, at least in the United States, illegal at the moment. Uh, so, although they do talk about, ca- talks about caffeine as well, which is not illegal, but has some interesting side effects, uh, or, or effects on your physiology. So th- that's a, uh, if you're interested, if you're a big fan of things like religion or LSD, you should also check out those books. <laughs> and hopefully you're listening to the podcast through a tour network or something that's not tracking us back to your <laughs> IP address as you're typing all this stuff into Google. <laughs> No, because it's a logical or. You can say, right. I, I am a fan of religion or LSD, and there's no way to prove that you did the illegal one. Exactly. Exactly. Lane, you've got a career in politics. Like, your ability to just, like, <laughs> to just, you've done it this whole episode where you've said stuff, and then you've, you've backed it up, and then you've adequately distant yourself from anything that could be pinpointed to you. I've just been in awe of this whole podcast. I'm like, this guy's going to be our next president. <laughs> Lord help us. <laughs> we'll automate that job away. Could, could too. be worse. Right? Well, it has been worse. <laughs> I won't say who, when it was worse, but it has been worse. <laughs> I don't want to alienate any of our listeners. That's the great thing is you can say that and everyone instantly like, yeah, Everyone agrees. Yeah. Nobody can anything. disagree with that. It's <laughs> <laughs> a logical well, order like there again. Part. That seems like a good point to end our podcast. So thank you everyone for listening. Lane, thanks for joining us. It's been a pleasure having you on and uh, hope to see you all again. <laughs>